The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. Welcome to this very special live spin-off event, the Class of 2017 Candidate Diary Reunion. Uh, my name is Toby Manheim and I'd like to give an extra big welcome to spin-off members Hi. who are here with us tonight. Uh, we couldn't do very much without our members and we definitely wouldn't be able to do this event. So support us if you can, uh, tell your friends, buy a membership for your enemies, do whatever it takes. Um, Way back in uh, 2017, when the spin-off was just a, a fledgling little website, we're now a fledgling medium-sized website, uh, with the election coming up, we invited a group of first-time candidates to write for us, sort of periodically through the campaign, and we invited the, the four major parties at that time were National, Labour, the Greens, and New Zealand First, so we approached all four, and New Zealand First snubbed us, um, but... Otherwise, we completely hit the jackpot. We got um, Kitty Tapu Allen from Labour, Eric Stanford from National, and Chloe Swarbrick from the Greens, um, who have all, you know, soared, really. Um, Stumbled. It's fair to say. <laughs> Survived. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're still here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I, we were chatting before about how they're going to, at the end, with the end, at the end, we're going to ask for some advice for future characters, so they're future candidates in other elections, and they're having to get themselves into character to show some enthusiasm after a long week in the house. Um, Kitty Allen entered Parliament in 2017 on the list. She became junior whip. She did a podcast with another new BMP called Chloe Swarbrick. How many episodes? Three. I reckon about three. Yeah. We Good tried live streaming once, yeah. and then I think we recorded like two that we didn't upload. There's, yeah. there's a lot of admin in podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> Kudos to you guys. Yeah. You know, it's, it's important to leave it to middle-aged men. Uh, <laughs> you guys do have the most opinions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Curry won the East Coast electorate as second attempt in 2020 and was catapulted into Cabinet as Minister for Conservation and Emergency Management. A few months ago, she was promoted up the ranks to Minister of Justice, um, which is quite a portfolio to inherit, and it's just as well she had some experience in an emergency management for that. Uh, <laughs> back in August 2017, she was describing how she had narrowly avoided vomiting before going on TV. Today, she's being tipped as a future Labour leader. Welcome, Kerry Allen. <laughs> I 
still like frequently get that feeling where I want to vomit before really? before really big um, occasions. Like yeah. now, like now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so are you eating that pizza just before? <laughs> Uh, Erica Stanford succeeded her old boss, Murray McCulley, by winning East Coast Bays in 2017. She quickly emerged as one of the most effective, arguably the most effective opposition MP, focusing intensely on her immigration and more recently education portfolios, while some of her colleagues focused intensely on murdering each other. (laughs) At the end of last year, Christopher Luxon promoted her to seventh ranking in caucus. Back in August 2017, she was writing about getting tissues jammed in her armpits by the makeup assistant during a TV interview <laughs> and offering the moral never wear silk. Yep, that TV. still don't. I, to this day, well, not, not light coloured silk anyway. Always avoid the light coloured silks. And today she is being tipped as a future national leader. Welcome, Erica Stanford. Hey. Chloe Swarbrick stormed into public view during her run for the Auckland mayoralty in 2016 and prompted a bidding war among parliamentary parties. Uh, That wasn't won by ACT, but it was won by the Greens. And she was elected as a List MP in 2017. In 2020, she pulled off one of the most dazzling electoral successes New Zealand has seen by winning the seat of Auckland Central. Chloe became easily the most compelling and eloquent voice for a yes vote in the 2020 referendum to legalise cannabis. We're still lost. <laughs> I was, well, was going to add that. But, uh, and has been a tireless legislator from the crossbenches. In August 2017, she was a young, outspoken uh, woman talking about a revolution. Today, she's a young, outspoken woman talking about a revolution. With a few more white hairs. also being tipped as a future Green Leader. Welcome, Chloe Swarbrick. I've just realised something. Hmm. We all won our seats because of retiring great long-term national MPs. <laughs> just, just twigged. I'm so upset that oh. Nikki didn't run in 2020. <laughs> I'll never, yeah, I'll never forgive yeah, her is, for that. The, of this event is the ears to the national throne, really. <laughs> You're both very welcome. <laughs> um, let's think a bit, little bit, talk a bit about the before times a little bit. Um, what were, the, what were the kind of key events that led you guys to entering politics? Erica, you were a TV producer. How do you go from being a TV producer to standing for parliament? Mm, well, that was a real, it was a fill-in job. That was my mom job. I actually, right. I was a, a, an export manager. Um, and then what catapulted me, I suppose, into politics was working for McCulley. Mm. Um, he wasn't around much because he was the, you know, Minister of Foreign mm. Affairs, getting us a seat on the, select, on the um, uh, Security Council. And so... I ended up doing lots of his work. And so that was kind of, for me, the catalyst. And then obviously him retiring. Mm. And you worked in his office for some time. In the, yeah, about in four and a half years. Well? Not in Parliament, no. just in his electorate right. office okay. for about yeah. four and a half years. Um, Kerry, you, is it true that Andrew Geddes's penchant for a glass of whiskey played a part in your legal and political <laughs> career? Is that a true story? It's 100% a true story. Tell us about that. Yeah, so um, I was a first-year student up here I was really probably doing that just so I could get the student allowance so that I could buy beers, if I'm being frank. But um, so I was doing some study up here and I was working in a bar in the evenings, Grand Central down uh, Ponsonby Road. And uh, this guy would come in once a month, sit at the end of my bar stool, and we'd just, we'd rant about the world. I was 
18 and I knew quite a lot about the world. Uh, <laughs> and so we'd just have these debates uh, every every Friday night, uh, once a month. It was with this, this gentleman. Anyway, everyone has a bit of a yarn when they come into a bar and everybody's got a bit of a reckon, but they all tell you these great things about who they are, where they're from. This chap um, tried to tell me he was a lawyer. And all of his mates that he'd bring in, like, had all been to these fancy universities like Harvard and Stanford, things I'd only heard about from the movies. Um, the gentleman that has kept coming into my bar, he said to me, you know, you've got to go study law. You, you've got to go, you know, you've got all these reckons. You should do something about it. And um, so he started sending me enrolment packs to my bar, law techs. <laughs> Turns out he was Professor Mark Hennigan and his mates were, you know, Dr. Uh, Andrew Geddes and that guy had just at that point returned back from Harvard, I think it was. So, yeah, I was working in this bar receiving all these textbooks from these random professors going, oh, sweet. Maybe I should check this thing out called Wilson Uni. Yeah, cool. Wow. And then the Minister of Justice. Yeah. It's <laughs> a very standard tradition. Yeah. Um, Chloe, you, I mean, we talked about the, I mentioned the mayoralty run. Mm. Can you tell me, uh, I guess, what prompted that and how the, how that turned into Parliament? Am I right with that there was a bidding war or am I making that up? Uh, so h- how I ended up, I guess, falling down the rabbit hole uh, was at this uh, tiny little radio station, number one alternative radio station in Auckland, uh, 95BFM. Uh, for about four and a half years, and it's been a long time interviewing politicians and feeling increasingly pissed off uh, by the fact that they didn't answer my question, even though when you're on student radio, you have about 10 minutes to ask them the same question over and over <laughs> again. Uh, and it was during the end of 2015, start of 2016, uh, when I had just finished my law degree and was interviewing the kind of top four candidates as prescribed by the mainstream media for the Auckland mayoralty. Uh, that I was asking them about, you know, what they were going to do with the future of our city and watching a bunch of my mates who just graduated um, moving overseas, particularly to Australia, where, you know, you could earn 22 bucks an hour, an hour bagging supermarket groceries and then find the time and space to do the thing that you loved on a side. And they also had, like, great public transport and awesome nightlife and stuff. <laughs> and here I was trying to convince my mates that we could do those things here uh, in Tamaki Makoto, but it felt as though whenever we were doing those things that the kind of system was pushing back against us and, yeah, I was just watching more and more people escape as a result. So I was kind of putting this to all these people who wanted to be in charge and lead, and they seem so out of touch with that as the experience of um, me and my communities and my family. And I did what any rational uh, 22-year-old would do, and I Googled how to become the mayor of Auckland. Uh, and I found that you had to be over the age of 22. Uh, over the age of 18, I was I actually waited to turn 22, so the final day that you could put in your nomination forms was uh, July the 4th. Uh, uh, my birthday is June 26th, so I waited to be 22 because I thought that would be far more appropriate. Um, yeah, I, clearly, had pay, clearly. <laughs> obviously. Um, I had to pay $200 in minister of fees, obviously could scrape that together, and two people nominate you. Um, my ongoing joke is that that means at least two people in Auckland will vote for you. Uh, it's a really interesting group of people who run in local body elections, which is great. We love local democracy. Uh, and, yeah, cut my teeth, obviously, debating, um, you know, Phil Goff, former leader of the uh, Labour Party, who went on to be our mayor, uh, and a range of other people. And throughout that process was really dedicated to how do we produce policy that actually will work? And it might not be immediately obvious, but I'm a real nerd. Uh, so really wanted to understand that stuff and came at it, I guess, from the perspective that uh, I get really angry when 
politicians and political parties approach the public as though they're dumb yeah. or as though they don't understand what's going on. Um, and I think that the public deserves a greater level of debate. So that was kind of, yeah, how I fell down that rabbit hole. After that, uh, came in third place. Third place? Yeah, third place. Just less than 30,000 votes. Um, and, yeah, had a few different political parties um, approach me, spoke to a few different people, uh, and went with the Greens because uh, despite them not being able to kind of guarantee a place, it was the alignment of values and I guess also the ability to off the bat just be straight up about the things that I wanted to do. Um, I don't want to speak for these guys or cast any impost on, um, you know, the constraints that they may be under, but I think that in a party smaller than the two historical big ones that mm. there's a little bit more freedom sometimes to express stuff, to shake some shit up. Do you, think, do you guys think that's fair? I mean, I think that all political parties there are constraints, and I think that um, all the you know Erica and I were in the two larger ones, which you presume, or to date anyway, in electoral politics in New Zealand, one of our parties has always held the helm, mm. and so therefore you enter into these parties on that basis that at some point in time you'll hold those treasury. Uh, benches, the mm. keys to the treasury, uh, and therefore you make decisions accordingly and you operate within the confines. I think that's what I like about MMP is that we do have support parties, other parties in parliament that bring specific lens and views to particular issues. They push us, uh, you know, and they influence decisions in a range of different ways, but I'm sure Chloe would probably agree that there's even within those smaller parties, mm. there's still constraints and confines, and the politics of people is always fun. So you know, there's some, mm. you know, there's differences, and there are some things that are quite aligned. But I think they, uh, the various roles we have, they've all got a bit of a role to play in the matrix of New Zealand politics. Mm. Um, let's talk a bit more about the life in Parliament that you guys encountered after the campaign itself, which is when you were writing these very cool diaries for us, which you can read on. I think that's so cute. Yeah, <laughs> we, we, we put up here in the room for people who are listening to this and can't see it some some photos from the the candidate diaries themselves. And Chloe said, have you gone through our social media? And I said, no, no those, are, those are the photos you provided. What were we thinking? Yeah. Yeah. Five, five I mean, short, Mark Zuckerberg five goes short years. Through, right? What do you guys think about when you when you when you cast your mind back to that campaign? Kerry, starting with you, the it was a. I mean, a lot happened, right? I mean, you had a baby along the way as oh, well. The, yeah. the leader, the leader changed. What do you th- what do, when you think back to that campaign? What what is what is your impression of it? Uh, look, um, it was it was. It was huge. It was life-changing. Yeah, we had a kid on the way, like probably just a little bit of advice to budding politicians. Maybe don't do both of those things in the same year, but whatever. Don't want to discourage anything either. It was a bit of a ride, though, taking a three-day-old baby into, like, union meetings. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But that's cool. Um, It was... Don't don't go to union meetings. (laughs) (laughs) The union was like, yeah! Go, baby! Um, No, look, it it was really dynamic. It was such an intense campaign. We'd had, um, the, you know, the government, uh, national government had been in for nine years. It, was, it felt like there was a lot of, uh, at stake, you know, that New Zealand sort of was ready, but we were sort of doing these 360 <laughs> things, um, as you guys ended up doing as well during that political campaign. So it was a lot of, like, t- it was tumultuous, it's how it felt. But mm. as a brand-new um, candidate living out in the East Coast, there wasn't a lot of people 
who were, um, you know, it's not like being in the city. So my electorate's like six hours just to go from one side to the other. So, you know, you're rallying up the fire faithful. We're on the ground. It was awesome. It was door knocking. It was grassroots. It was boots on the ground, stuff that makes your heart sore. You got to see the insides of people's lives that would crush you and just make you go, yes, this is your why. And it was reaffirmed every single day. So I loved it. I loved campaigning because I love our people. And I love feeling like uh, you can be a useful and effective sort of, you know, um, loudspeaker in various different places. So that kind of component was epic. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And probably went in with a lot of like uh, uh, wide eyes, bushy tail, and the whole time just going, what is going? <laughs> <laughs> Let's make a podcast. <laughs> you just, you just, um, uh, Looked at Chloe when you said you guys went through something too, and, and mm. I, I, I'm guessing you were talking about the the Metiria situation. Is that um, Chloe? When when you think back, how large does that loom in the memory of that campaign period? Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, um, man, it was emotional. <laughs> uh, you know, the largest phone calling night that we had arranged to date happened on the night that Met announced her resignation and mm. we had, you know, 50-odd people uh, in our office uh, in Auckland Central, just off of Karangahave Road, mm. uh, and we were all tuned into the 6 o'clock news and that happened and then we all kind of crashed <laughs> and uh, we're like, yeah, we can't do phone calling anymore. We're going to bank that. Um, and having a few... Uh, conversations with Met during uh, that time in that process there's one thing that she said which kind of stuck in my mind and I think it was uh, you know a day or two thereafter that I actually ended up being on another panel um, with Kitty where I reused exactly that statement from Metiria which is that no one person is bigger than the kaupapa you know you have to keep moving forward if we have a movement that lives or dies on the shoulders of one person then that's not a sustainable movement it's not a movement you know, um, so yeah, it, it, it was gnarly, um, and I don't know if I've still necessarily worked through all of that trauma. <laughs> mm. Mm. So yeah, it was it, it was a hardcore campaign, um, and it was yeah the highs and lows of emotions, and it was the rallying, like like Kitty said, you know, you were constantly reminded day after day, talking to people, and it's still the same every single day in this role when we talk to people who having trouble getting housing or through the immigration system or any of these other systems where a computer says no and doesn't recognise their individual circumstances or have empathy for the fact that they might not know how to communicate for or advocate for themselves through um, all of those layers of bureaucracy. Yeah, you're reminded of why you do it. Erica, your party, by contrast, had the same leader through the course of the campaign. No, For that election, no, no yes. <laughs> this, this kind of feels like that dinner party. At that, you, know that, you know that scene in Notting Hill where they're all trying to give their tale, their worst tale of woe to get the last piece of brownie? Like, luxury for you guys. I had four leaders in one year. I get the brownie. You get the brownie, sister. You get the brownie. I mean, maybe it's group therapy. <laughs> Are you for the <laughs> this is feeling a little cathartic. It's quite raw. Um, 
And then you and then you guys came first. Mm. So you had the same leader and you came first and you also lost. And then we lost. Seems, yeah. I remember seems... being on a flight because they announced the decision of what Winston was going to do and I happened to be on a flight from Wellington to Auckland at the time and it happened while we were in the air. Mm. And as we uh, land, as soon as we landed, the pilot came over, the loudspeaker, and he went, he went with Labour. <laughs> and it was just, that's it, not, not welcome wow. to a new, not, not, <laughs> and he went with Labour. And there was one guy at the back of the plane that went, woo! <laughs> Everybody else was like, oh. <laughs> All the seats at the front, the Coro seats. I'll never forget that. <laughs> you went with labour. <laughs> Tell me about the campaign, though, generally. Eric. What is it? What is it? What, what's your, your memory of that period? Look, I had campaigned twice for McCully. Um, and so I kind of knew what I was doing. It was very formulaic. Um, mm. It's a small postage stamp of an electric compared to what Kitty has to, to, to travel through. Um, you know, it's here are all the touch points. This is what you have to do. Here are all your volunteers. McCulley left us with a great team and enough money to, to campaign and we'd raise some ourselves. So it was that was pretty straightforward. I just remember, you know, I was relatively newish to the party. I'd done mm. a lot for McCulley, but I hadn't interacted with a lot of the MPs and I remember seeing like Nikki Kay and Judith Collins and being like, oh my God. (laughs) It was, I was sort of starstruck by all these people that I hadn't met before. Um, Mm. You know, it was, it was, it was, it looks a relatively straightforward campaign. There wasn't, you know, nothing that kind of went awry or, you know, it was what we'd done for McCulley in the past could have supercharged. So Mm -hmm. yeah, nothing. And, And then what about, what about election night? I mean, I remember distinctly the Herald on Sunday front page the next day. I say distinctly, I can't remember what the headline was, but the headline, (laughs) I mean, it was was Bill English with his arms raised and it was something like New Zealand turns blue, you know, the light turns blue. It was something that was quite um, unambiguously victory for National. Was that the the vibe? Was that the mood in the team? Yep, I remember at the the Browns Bay Bowling Club and the results came in and we we thought, well, that's that's it, you know. Mm. I mean, it wasn't 100%, but we thought with that majority at 44, then that, we had a really good chance. Mm. And do you think, what do you think to the thesis that is sometimes proffered is that that was part of the pain that was endured in the years to come was not properly mm. recovering from that, getting over getting over that? Oh, possibly. But there are a lot of other things going on. <laughs> <laughs> We've got time. <laughs> <laughs> Give us no, a no, shot. I don't think it was all played out in the media. I don't think there's anything under the sun. It'll be any surprise to you. Um, then, no, there was lots of other things going on. But, there, of course, there was. There was that expectation and then it sort of got yanked out from underneath us. And I, we'll probably see a little bit for a while. Mm. Um, but, you know, it, it, it was probably in a way good for us because it meant that we were all sort of down on the same level again, like all of those senior cabinet ministers, because we were quite stratified when you've got senior cabinet ministers who, you know, you don't have the time to talk to the, you know, backbench MPs. Suddenly we were all on the same level. And that was quite good. Um, but right. It just it did take a while to work things out. You're right, and I don't know if that was to do with the election or all the other personality things that were going on. So, in terms of your kind of uh, first days in Parliament, once it got up and going after that decision was made by mm. by Winston Peters, or the party rather, um, the, <laughs> the, did that change the way that you kind of integrated into it because you weren't falling into a hierarchy as much as you would have, would have been other ways? Do you think? Yeah, no, that, that was definitely true. We we were all suddenly on the same level, but there was a, a sense of a weird sense of unease because it felt like, and I don't know what other MPs would agree with me, but it felt like Bill English wasn't going to last, um, mm. and we 
it was kind of this weird secret that no one talked about. Mm. Um, and so there was this weird sense of when are things going to change? How are they mm. going to change? Who's it going to be? But it wasn't really talked about. And so it was a, it was a really uneasy, uneasy period. Mm. Um, a, trying to figure out well, why we lost and then well, what's going to happen now. What do you remember, Chloe, of those first days going into that institution? And it's weird. Going into arcane. the institution. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah, it's a great way to describe it. Yeah. Uh, I remember that it was like school uh, and that there were bells that told us where we had to be. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, yeah, I remember Kitty and I uh, both got box pops by uh, the media doorstops going in and talking about how it's like Hogwarts and all that kind of stuff. Um, but so one, one of the things, yeah, I, I, I thought we had to draft our own bills. Um, I, so I was stoked when I learned about PCO. Um, I, I didn't realise we had to sit till 10 o'clock at night. Yeah. That was new. Yeah. New yeah, information. No, yeah. <laughs> Did you not know that? Well, I I also, um, one of the weirdest things, like when people ask me about um, just, you know, what's one of the unexpected things about Parliament, uh, actually one of the weirdest things is the unanticipated amount of power in the House program and control of the order paper. Mm. So we uh, debate things and, you know, for first reading, second reading, committee of the whole and third reading, there are different allocations of speeches, but they're between five and ten minutes. Uh, And you can use up all of that time um, or you can do, obviously, a far shorter speech. And when you have between ten and twelve speeches on each of those readings, except for committee of the whole, committee of the whole is the only time when you can do what's called filibustering, a term that's far more comfortable in America, but basically it's just extending the amount of time that you're debating this thing to, so that you delay other things coming up. Uh, that's been a really interesting thing to learn about, particularly for the likes of members' days and trying to negotiate uh, and finding time to negotiate other things that are happening behind the scenes. So the only time that I've ever engaged in filibustering um, was actually on Simeon Brown's Psychoactive Substances Amendment legislation, uh, where I think I did a solid like two and a half hours, including on the title and commencement clause, giving it a range of names uh, and commencement dates and all of the other things and putting forward a bunch of SOPs. But that was all to buy time to negotiate the um, Misuse of Drugs Act um, amendments around Section 7 to police discretion and otherwise. Um, so that's kind of one of the weirdest things that yeah. I recall about learning is just that actually it's not that there is these really set times and ways that you negotiate things through, but whoever controls that order paper, um, there's a yeah a benefit to uh, the way that you're then trying to negotiate things behind the scenes. That house, what I learned is the house has a, a, a life of its own and you mm. can speed it up and slow it down. Yeah. And you'll remember, because you're a backbencher, when we first started, these guys had a really light order paper, so not that many bills. And so these poor, brand-new MPs, watching them having to do 10-minute speeches on bills they had no idea <laughs> about. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Don't control it. Yeah. I them. am proud uh, <laughs> to like stand to the up. select committee. Yeah. And, and the speaker. I yeah. 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 Actually, <laughs> actually, I remember this one official. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's National getting up going, oh, yeah, terrible bill, uh, we don't support it, sit down. Yeah. Uh, and then watching these guys just sweating. I remember Chris Bishop came down, uh, Chris um, Hipkins, sorry, came down mm. to the House and he was debating whether or not there should be an and, this is the committee stage. Yeah. But should there be an and here or should we remove that? And a 10-minute speech. <laughs> <laughs> it's brilliant. Yeah. But uh, we just filibustered the... Um, the fair pay. I did mm. nine hours filibustering that bill. Nine wow. solid hours. Me and Goldie, boy, we a medal for that. Yeah. <laughs> for democracy. <laughs> okay. yeah. 
Yeah. Well, it turns out um, I was actually going through this the other day because one of my favourite themes of parliamentary debates is when people stand up and say this is a waste of time and then spend 10 minutes talking about how it's There's parliamentary library research uh, from the 2011 to 2014 term, um, which is obviously a gross estimate, but uh, it's that for every sitting uh, minute of parliament, it's $5,500 of taxpayer money. So for all of those MPs that were making that point, I said, you know, in filling your 10 minutes, 50K of taxpayer dollars, carpi. You you need to write it on a sign, one of the visual visual aids of Parliament is another subculture. Kitty, were you made Labour junior whip straight away? Yeah. So you were straight, <laughs> straight into that weird, yeah, we got abstruse in. world. I mean, it's like election was like the seventeenth or something of September, I think, and then we would have been down in Wellington and sworn in. Mm-hmm. I don't know about you know within the next couple of weeks, and I know that I was a whip in October, mm. and I remember my phone was going off from the chief whip, and I thought, why would a chief whip want to ring a backbench MP? To tell you off, you're in trouble. <laughs> you're in trouble. Yeah. I remember it. Didn't see it. <laughs> didn't see it. And then I was going around, why is Ruth Dyson calling me? <laughs> no, not answering it. And so anyway, I went into caucus and she still was up. She's like, Kitty, let me try to ring you. I was like, oh, oh, gee. How can I help? She's like, I, I'm going to ask you to whip. I said, oh, good. <laughs> What's so a whip? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can tell like that my life story is really planned and there's a lot of thought that goes into most of these decisions. But yeah. So um yeah, so myself, Karen McAnulty and Ruth Dyson, we were the original whip team for the Labour government. Um and that is where I learned to do all of these the stuff that these guys are talking about. So our job was essentially to manage the house. We managed the order paper. We ran the politic of the house, timing, uh, negotiations, meant that having to have quite um, collegial relationships with the National Party whips, Green Party whips, musterers. Musterers. musters. That's non-violent terms. Yeah, kaupapa. <laughs> well, it is true, though, isn't it? The, the, the whip is quite a violent term. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean... Yeah, we're an ecosystem, I mean, not a hierarchy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's okay, a reason I, I didn't join the group. <laughs> I've heard at your party conferences there's, like, hours-long debate as to why, the, like, the plates aren't recyclable. Is that oh, true? Yeah. Yeah, and uh, there was once a mass walkout because uh, the uh, diet had been slowly turning more vegetarian. <laughs> There's a good bit in, in Gareth Hughes' book about Jennifer Simons in which he describes um, someone wanting to put a motion at, a, I can't remember whether it's values party or Green Party, for um, a co-leaders, co-leaders mm. and every member of the party would be a co-leader. Obviously. So, <laughs> it's, it's Did you not right? see that just happen? <laughs> <laughs> I saw some pretty lengthy delays in, like, uh, you know, not standing for co-leader statements. <laughs> Very deliberate democracy. Go, Chloe. Two thousand and seventeen spin-off diaries. Bring yeah, everyone yeah, together. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Erica, the I don't want to. I don't want to dwell on this too long. But there were some tricky years there. Mm. Um, <laughs> you should circle back. What do you do? <laughs> to what do you, what do you, you know, as a big bitch European, you you know, you, I mean, you did as far as I'm aware, just crack on with policy stuff. Yeah. But how do you, I mean, that must have been hell. It was. It was, there were some caucus meetings 
that was so horrific mm. that I sat there wringing my hands, looking at the floor, mm. going, oh, this needs to be over, this needs to be over. This right. It was horrific. And it was a lot of them. Um, and, yeah, but the, the thing is you just you can't get involved in it. You've got to just, yeah. ugh, and, you know, get on with your own work. But it was it was rough. I mean, even recently with – and Todd Muller's a really great friend of mine. He's a wonderful man. And just watching that happen yeah. and, you know, yeah. it was it was. Awful. Yeah. It was awful. But the great thing is, is that it's all behind us, and um, you know we're moving <laughs> on. And that doesn't and happen anymore. Next year. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was. I mean, look, labour's been through it. We've all been there. It's it's yeah. the, that, the, the wilderness, right? After you've had yeah. nine long years in, in, in government, and then suddenly um, you're out, you're out in your ear, and, and you've got to rebuild. And we, you know, look, and like every party, you know, we just don't do succession planning very well mm. I mean you guys didn't we didn't and then you end up with exactly what's happened at so least, at least in New Zealand the last 40 years or so we've had the decency to do it when parties are in opposition rather than in government in the UK mm. right yeah well, that's well, something that's you know? true. <laughs> at least do the disemboweling while you're in the opposition <laughs> benches Chloe um I remember you I remember talking to you a number of times you wrote some things and there was you felt quite disenchanted Mm. For some periods there, mm. I think you mean every week. Or <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, I'm trying to. I'm trying to remember the timing. Particularly, maybe it was towards the end of the first term. I don't know. But I, I mean, mm. I think you. Is it fair to say you were thinking seriously about whether or not to go again? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm flipping and saying that it happens every week, but it genuinely does happen <laughs> pretty much every week. Yeah. Um, but there are definitely some days where it feels um, a lot tougher. Like, I was actually. Um, having a chat to uh, my good friend Zoe's dad, Jono, uh, over the Christmas break uh, in Littleton where it turns out, like, fucking everyone has a boat? I don't know. Anyway, uh, we're on his boat uh, <laughs> and this ramshackle boat uh, and I was watching him fix it and everyone else was going, doing busy things and I was there for my wisdom from the Oracle uh, and I was just complaining to him about how I hate so much of the, the system and the institution that, you know, we're inside of because in the chamber, climate change doesn't exist, poverty doesn't exist, and everyone's just living Shakespearean soliloquies based on how long their whip has told them to talk for. Uh, and that feels very disenchanting. But then you go out, particularly into the electorate, and you engage with people and you solve some problems and you get some proof of concept and you mobilise people and you give some people some hope and you can build on that. And that's the stuff which kind of re-energises me. But I was talking to Jono about kind of that that tug of war, especially after that 107 day lockdown um, in Palmerton, where yeah, it had been it had been really gnarly and challenging uh, mentally as well, to be honest. Mm. Uh, and he was talking about um, this uh, documentary <laughs> that was made, uh, which I was in. Uh, I heard about that. Yep. Um, which uh, there's a line in it where I'm being interviewed and I say, you know, politics is fucked, and he was like. I had two thoughts uh, after watching that. The first is that you're a really fucking good politician because uh, you can say something that's so uh, manipulative and that people will get on side with and see that you're authentic and genuine and, you know, you're delivering it in that way. Uh, the second thought um, is that, you know, if, if there is authenticity and, you know, a sense of genuineness to, to that statement, then that's really sad and that's a really, really sad space for particularly a young person to be in and to navigate through on, on a daily basis. And as we were talking through it, um, he kind of helped me realise that there are parts of it that, like, I, I genuinely do love, and that is the problem-solving stuff that all of us yeah. have kind of alluded to and spoken about. 
Um, and yeah, it, it kind of also feels, I guess, as I get older and more mature, uh, <laughs> that it's just so petty to, to complain about it in that in that way, you know. Like there, there is a there's such a privilege to, to doing this job. So I'm still navigating all of that stuff, and I still do get very cynical and very disenchanted. But um, the way that I've kind of framed up that I do my job now is that I'm very effectively annoying. Um, I'm very good at picking an issue and running with it and finding every single possible avenue to keep that issue alive. And in doing that, there's some kind of sense of success that you feel in being creative. <laughs> um, so that's fun. Yeah. Thank you. Kerry, on um, March the 5th, 2021, you that was, I think, the day of the tsunami. Yes. And you were... The looking like the coolest person on the planet in that zip-up black top, <laughs> being the emergency management um, minister, and 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 the, you know the whole country was really impressed with you. But what, there was there was some stuff we didn't know. Are you happy to talk about this? Are yeah, you the, what, what what else? I mean, you tell the story. There was other, there was another massive thing, mm. emergency happening for you. Yeah. So that morning, I was scheduled to go in for. Um, a test in the women's centre at uh, Wellington Hospital because I had been, um, I had basically not stopped menstruating for quite some time and it was quite significant and I was uh, quite crooked by that point. Um, and I'd been getting tests and everything was sort of showing up clear, etc. cetera. Uh, but my colleague, uh, Aisha Beryl, I told her about uh, probably only three or four days prior, I said to her, look, man, this thing's still going on. I don't really go to doctors. I don't enjoy that side of things. So I just was talking to my mate who was next doctor. She said, is this normal? Like, am I all good? She was like, she looked at me sort of quite ashen and she was like, I'm saying this to you as a friend. I really need you to go to the women's centre and get tested urgently. I was just like, fuck, that's a bit of a tone to take. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Okay, doctor. Okay, doctor. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, that's what I'd been planning on doing that morning. But, yeah, my phone started going off at about, I can't remember now, it was about 2 or 3 in the morning. Uh, And my office and I were making these calls like, oh, apparently it's really important. We've got to go get this test. Uh, Well, let's see how far we can delay it and let's see what we can do that morning to try and just manage the tsunami thing. We can knock a few things out. Made a line uh, call. Uh, I'd done all the media, morning media rounds, which took us to about 8 o'clock. Like, yep, okay, let's do it. Jumped in the crown car, zoomed to the hospital, and then my phone's just blowing up. And I remember saying to the receptionist, I was like, see that um, lady on the screen there talking about the tsunami? She's like, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, it's me. Um, What's sort of like the time frames and how can I... Because I'm sweet. I just need to know whether I can duck out. Like, how can we manage it? So, no, no. <laughs> so yeah, I ended up doing my, most of my interviews uh, either in the waiting room. But the coolest one was where I had, like, <laughs> had my legs up. I had my um, iPods kind of connected in. Oh, we've got this photo of me. I'm giving a live. Uh, it was a captain. <laughs> and that captain looked down the thing. I'm like, we just really need to be assured that everybody... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a wow. vibe. Um, <laughs> uh, so, yeah, no, look, we found out the results 
shortly thereafter. I can't, I can't really remember the sequence, but I was coming up to Auckland actually. Uh, it must have been within that week. Uh, I was actually due to speak an event with Helen Clark and John Key. And so we'd kind of whipped away. <laughs> we'd been having, it was by the stage, it's sort of been going in and out because we had to do tests, more and more tests, and everybody was, yeah, so nobody could work out what was going on. <laughs> I remember I jumped off the plane uh, in Auckland. So here, and just before you go through these little doors to take you into the airport proper, you're on the, the domestic kind of airport side of it. My phone was ringing. I was like, oh, it's the doctor lady. All right, I just swung off, took the call. I was like, oh, yeah, good out, it's good She's like, Hey, Kitty, your test results are back and um, you've tested positive for cancer. Or whatever she said. I was just like, what? <laughs> so, yeah, I was just like sort of started crumbling on the, the floor over here. And I had this beautiful, um, she is a, a, a parliamentary secretary, so not a political staffer, a, a public official was with me. And um, I was just like, she's like, are you okay? I was like, so she whisked me off to the car, sort of lost things by that point. And she just managed my, my entire, she cancelled everything, got me in a car, got me to my parents, came up, looked after me, and I sort of fell apart. But it was an interesting period of time. Um, you know, I don't recommend it again, uh, but if you're going to go through something like that, I was incredibly grateful for our public health system and got to see it firsthand in a way I hadn't really seen it before. I was like many New Zealanders sitting out in the um, in the A and E uh, beds because I was going in and out all the time for hours, you know. And you're seeing the real life stress that like these people are under. You're going, goodness gracious me! So I got to see things I wouldn't otherwise seen. Um, confront, confronted mortality uh, quite face up. They did think I was going to cark it for a, a good period there. My main doctor didn't think that, ever. Quite a few other people did. She, she's like, no, we've got this, we've got this. I was like, yeah, okay, so it is. Um, so I, through that duration of that period, I was seeing a psychologist for the entire time and preparing to die. And that's an interesting experience to go through as a young mother, somebody who had just started in my, really, my parliamentary career. I'd been a minister for, goodness gracious me, like six months, not even that, three, four, five months, something like that. Uh, and so just being confronted with this real prospect, okay, <laughs> everything you thought was going to happen isn't. And then anyway, sort of, we got, kind of got through all that and now here we are. Um, but one thing I just want to kind of pick up from both of the sisters that they both said, and look, that was a personal journey that I went through, but all of us, I think, um, I don't know if I can say this on behalf of you guys can say it for yourself, this job, um, I think, brings you to, it really pushes you to your your limit, mm-hmm. spiritually, physically, mentally. Um, it's a very uncomfortable environment. I think some people come in and feel automatically relatively comfortable. It's a domain and sphere people find comfort in. We, I, we and her have these conversations all the time. We feel out of place. Mm. We don't fit the mold. We're not from that place. It doesn't sound like us. We don't. There is nothing about that place that is familiar even five years on, even as a minister and you've got all these public, you know, servants. Mm. Nothing about that place is, is feels like it's at, at all um, ordinary or normal or common. So it is a challenge to be in that environment all the time. I call, I sort of talk about the way to side of it. Mm. Spiritually, I just like my feet. I've constantly got to ground my feet in this job. Chloe's absolutely right. Every single day you chuck your boots on, you feel like it is the most, it is an absolute privilege mm. and it is a heartbreaking privilege. I don't yeah. think that you can separate the two out. 
So, yeah, it's interesting. People don't know about this, but there's um, a lot of camaraderie that goes in across the house. Me and her, we were in scraps all the time and mm. in the house, and, that, and rightly so for our policies and, mm. and politics. That's fine. But behind that, we will sit together and cry sometimes because mm. it's just that rubbish. And you've got to, um, yeah, that's a part of the human side of politics. Isn't it? Raising capital or taking your business to the world? Investment Fix has the lowdown on everything you need to make it happen. This season, we're exploring the US market, the opportunities it offers, what it takes to grow a business there, and the best way to approach investors. Join some of the superstars of the investment and business world as they share advice from their time in the US so you can make your mahi count in this massive market. The Investment Fix podcast, brought to you by Invest New Zealand. Tune in today. Is that your experience too, Erica? Is it? I mean, politicians say this a lot. Oh, what you see, what you see in the house is not the real thing. And some of us who have, you know, met a number of politicians that say that's broadly true. People do get on; they jump in a cab together or have mm. a drink at some event together. <clears throat> is that is that your experience? And and I guess the other part to that is, is that okay? Is it okay to have this kind of theatre on one front and then the getting on behind the scenes? I think so. I mean, I absolutely agree with everything that Carrie said about how the place is and how it doesn't fit with us. Um, but you're right, there is a theatre and we go hell for leather at each other, although the three of us, I mean, <laughs> Carrie and I are usually laughing at each other across the house. We're texting each other. We're texting each other. Me so yeah, yeah, you'll be answering, uh, answering a question in Parliament. I'm heckling her and texting her at the same time. Um, but you're right behind. Can the we scenes. are IA then. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> um, but it, well, it's, if, you, if you didn't get on behind the scenes, you'd go mad. Mm. Um, look, yeah, there are some labor, some of your mates I probably wouldn't have a drink with, but um, you know, yeah, <laughs> probably some of mine you wouldn't either. <laughs> You've got to, you've, uh, we drive you mad otherwise. Mm. Yeah. You, you have to. Um, so it, it's good, that part of it. But also you need to get along to get, mm. get work passed done. and get work done in select committee. And if you didn't, it would just be a big shit fight the whole mm. time, and that's not mm. great. So select committee is good to actually improve bills, even ones we don't agree mm. with. We mm. still make them better. But it's like real life. Like you, you have to work. If, if you want yep. a neighbourhood to work, if you want a community to work, You're you company. have to figure out how to work with people that you disagree with a lot of the time or some of the time. So, yeah, it's, it's exactly the same thing. And I think what you're touching on, Toby, particularly in terms of the performance of the house, is, is that fit for purpose in terms of the kind of rulemaking process that we want for sake of the constitution of this country and the way that we progress uh, and evolve and develop? No, it's not the best way to do that stuff. Uh, it would be far better if we had a far more collaborative approach. But, you know, doing so would mean completely upturning our Westminster kind of colonial system and... I'm all for that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Minister of Justice. <laughs> it does work. Uh, <laughs> just start with the alcohol sponsorship and then yeah. we'll do the whole yeah, system. That's one thing I did want to say, though. Mm. Yeah, so, uh, yes, yeah, mm. there, uh, there is a bit of um, uh, theatre. And, I, you know, I kind of treat everything in life like rugby because um, <laughs> rugby makes sense. Um, but, you know, You've got teams, you're on a pitch, you're there to do a job and there's you're rules. there to score tries and there's rules and, and you know, everybody signs up knowing what the rules of engagement are, right? But off, off, off the pitch, you do go down to the club, you do have a beer and you acknowledge 
acknowledge the other side for, you know, what they've done well and where they haven't, you know, or whatever it is. Uh, and relationships are critical. And in my role, um, you know, in justice particularly, you know, we're making, I make a lot of law. There's a lot of law that comes through my office and it impacts everybody. The more I have bipartisan or cross-party support to ensure that it's going to be enduring, the more confident I can feel in, you know, taking that that through. And so I'm constantly working, particularly with, um, well, actually, I've probably had you in my office like three times yeah, this week. Yeah, I've been Yep, and I've had, you know, many cool. of your, well, there's quite a few of your mm. colleagues that are in my office and we're working through details, uh, you know, and then they'll sledge me the next day in the house and that's fine. Mm. I, there's, there's a thing about it that's acceptable to me because they'll be raising issues and I'll be then going to my officials. Are there ways that I can... Is there a real policy issue here that we can fix? Uh, what's the what's the vulnerability in the proposal that we're proffering? And do I need to do something to make this piece of law better? And I do think that that's something. I don't know if that's just outside the house. I'm sure you would have seen that um, when your government was in as well. But I think that that's an appropriate way to make law. Mm. Well, some, you do that probably quite well. Um, some ministers don't. Yeah, sure. I mean, I've been battling with Michael Woodover, the nurses on the two-year pathway to residence like for like Michael. months. Just saying. <laughs> it's going to be better if you go, I like Mike. It's just going to be better. We can, I'm on transport, you. anyway. Sorry, yeah. Erica. Very yeah. important immigration I, I stuff. I love yeah. Michael. Yeah. <laughs> um, one more bleak place we'll go to, and then we'll then we'll then we'll then we'll turn it up and be more up. We're in the trenches. <laughs> I mean, I, I do think we just sort of, we sort of maybe touched on this a little bit, but the, the, you know the the toxicity of politics isn't just within politics; it's also coming from 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 outside politics. And there was a thing I saw on um, a social network called Twitter the other day. <laughs> I deleted that from my so phone. So did I. Yeah. I, mean, I, have an I have an app. It makes me idea. breathe before I open it. <laughs> really? Yeah. really? Yeah, yeah, I can, I can show you. Wow. Yeah. It was a mental health tip that I got given, and my mental health is better. <laughs> my husband banned me from it. Like, yeah. Same thing. He said, yeah. you, you're, you're going to end up doing something bad if yeah. you keep yeah. staying on Twitter, yeah. so I'm off. Anyway, yes, we know that. Yep. We know that. You know We've heard of it. Um, yeah. You it's had sent a message to, I think, your mum, Curry. Yes, I And she was, she was, um, Obviously, it resp- I didn't even see the thread, but obviously there was some bile that was going on in the thread. Mm. And you said to her, Mama, love you, don't read it and don't let all this sort of stuff stress you out, kiss, kiss, <laughs> which was very sweet, a little, you know, a little moment there. But it is, you also wrote, Kiri, in your, in your, one of your diaries about how your skin was growing thicker already dealing with this mm. new intense thing. And, of course, some of that is part of the course. I guess my question is whether... Over those five years, it's got worse, whether some of what happened in COVID, general, that social network I talked about and others, whether it's whether you guys feel as though it's worse now than it was in 2017. I think it's just worse because we're all more high profile. Mm. No one ever said anything about me on Twitter in 2017. No one right. knew who I was. Yeah. But now, because I'm saying stuff about the government and their you know, bad policies in immigration or education or whatever, and then people just feel like they can be, get really personal I had one amazing email the other day about a woman who was complaining about something that was relatively reasonable, so I started reading it. And then she got, went on to say that, you know, and your hair's too long and you're obviously a daddy's girl and you've got men, men issues because women your age and who, who are going to get, you know, down to real work should cut their hair. <laughs> <laughs> I put it on Facebook. It's like, my best ever post. Yeah. Everyone commented. Yeah. So now I'm growing my hair. You know? <laughs> so, I did that over lockdown. I, I think you just once you start, I think people think, 
that you're fair game because you put yourself in this position and therefore they can be awful to you. And you should just deal with it because you're asking for it, which is awful. I, I hate reading that stuff. I don't, I don't mind people saying, no, you're totally wrong because you got your facts wrong or this is wrong. Well, that's fine. I can deal with that and I can come back and go, well, actually, you know. But when they start being really personal, it's awful. It's not nice. And it, yeah, it's bad for your mental health. Yeah, I'd say um, that, like, I'm way less on Twitter than I was five years ago. Um, what's actually far more concerning for me is that uh, I have definitely seen a transcendence from the online place into the real world. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so there's, y- yes. Um, I've, I've been loath to talk about it um, kind of in the media because it can then, I feel, generate kind of copycat stuff. But... Um, yeah, it's getting a lot grosser, Toby. Like, I'm, I am really genuinely concerned about the election next year and the, um, the environment. Um, yeah, that we're in. Like, a dude uh, on the street the other day um, who was with his family, uh, normal looking guy. I was just sat doing some emails um, in the middle of the city. Uh, started yelling "communist" <laughs> at me, uh, and I look up and I'm like what on earth is going on? Is this man okay? Um, and it keeps going. Uh, so I asked him very reasonably, what do you think communism means? <laughs> um, and he was like, it's state control of everything. And I was like, well, actually, that's authoritarianism. What you're talking about is the economic system. <laughs> um, he, he didn't want to hear that. Uh, so he was not up for intellectual debate. <laughs> yeah, no. uh, so he kept, he kept yelling at me um, and I uh, just tried to kind of, you know, stay calm and as you do in that situation, you try and de-escalate it because, yeah, he was standing there, chest puffed puffed out, his wife had kept walking with the pram. I assume it's his wife. I apologise for assuming random man on the street. Uh, But his kid um, had come and stood beside him and was imitating his um, body language. And, yeah, I uh, just had to stand there and kind of decompress and be like, okay, cool, thank you. And then, you know, afterwards just try and disengage from that and, it really shook me in a way that I haven't been shaken uh, by any of the online stuff, like when it gets into that physical space, because I get it. And like Eric has kind of alluded to how uh, when you're in this space and particularly when you're the things that you say are amplified through the media, uh, the media is a medium and therefore you become detached from your individual self. You're a concept and people can critique that concept. And that's all, you know, we do to a certain extent, absolutely sign up for that. But when it becomes very targeted and very individualised and it's not actually a rational or a good faith discussion or debate, um, yeah, it's we're in a pretty difficult place at the moment and I, like, have all of the same greeny prescriptions that I would to all of our social ills to resolve it, which is, like, we just need to turn down the temperature and start having some, you know, community building, like some genuine community building and start getting, yeah, back to that. So we're not seeing that. I'm, I'm not seeing that. And I thought when, mm-hmm. you know, Jacinda had been talking about wanting to peel back the public appearances because she's worried about safety, I thought, oh, you know, that's just her not wanting to have that comparison between, say, 2017 and 2020 when mm-hmm. she was loved to now when she's not so loved, uh, well, as much as she was before. Um, but actually, now talking to these guys, mm-hmm. I realise it's actually a thing. There are death mm-hmm. threats. And we, we don't see that. So mm-hmm. it's hard to yeah. understand, but I feel like probably talking yeah. to you guys it, it is the temperature is raised and there is more of that and I, I just really feel for my staff as well like my staff are at the front lines dealing with this stuff mm. um primarily in the electorate office and on the phones um and they screen a lot of emails now for me as well um 
yeah, like there's real people at the end of this stuff and it's really challenging. Jeez. Kitty, um, uh, Claire Zaba at the Labour conference the other day, the outgoing president, was talking in a, in a, in a, in a very serious and depressing fashion about um, how everyone gearing up for the next election should have a safety officer who is in every electorate who's looking, looking out for this sort of stuff. Yeah, oddly, I agree. Like, uh, you know, I always think, oh, you know, we can kind of go a bit heavy-handed. But um, no, I think that the political environment that we're in, uh, there's a fractured sense of um, uh, community and out there at the moment, and that's something that we need to really, in my view, collectively across the House, whatever roles we're in actually, mm-hmm. is heal the rift that has really occurred in our social fabric um, over the last couple of years. These last couple of years have been very hard. Um, I, uh, yeah, you know, did I write in 2017 as a year you get, you know, thicker skin, et cetera? That's completely correct. And you uh, I, I honestly, there's so much vitriol rubbish that goes on on this thing. I don't, that means nothing to me anymore. Um, The thing that does get me a little bit, though, is when I'm with my children Mm. and I am threatened. Even by myself, I don't mind. I mean, I can manage that. But it's when I'm with my kids. And that up the temperature over the past year um, to the extent people were following you, I would have to park in public places and literally wait and have 111 on your phone and those types of things. That stuff when you're by yourself is like, okay, but if you've got little kids in your car and they're seeing you or they see you scared, or not scared, but just like, right, you know, that's that's not kind of something I think is acceptable. Um, a, a lot, you know, in my weekends I try to spend as much time as I can with my kids, usually doing worky stuff, but um, at least you're out. But I just remember this one engagement. I was at a Bunnings and, um, you know, got the kids with the bloody sausages and they got tomato sauce over there and we're running through trying to get, I don't know, nails or whatever it is that we're doing. Uh, and just literally being kind of cornered in by two people who were very aggrieved around mandates, um, but locking us in, myself, my partner, and our two kids at the end of a row in Bunnings. And, you know, having a, you know, it's interesting. You just kind of have to, and that wasn't, this, and that incident's not isolated. I think I just found that one a little bit egregious because I didn't quite know how to manage it with my babies. But I don't like that. I don't like that that's become the state of New Zealand. Like I said, the thing that I find most energising about why we all do this job is because we give a damn about our people. I'm a real grassroots politician. I love being on the ground. I love our people. It's where I get my energy from. Um, but, yeah, something's changed. And I think there is a little bit in what Erica said. Yeah, people know more who we are, et cetera. That's probably very true. And I've got my big, ugly face on my um, truck, which <laughs> I took it off. I took mine off. Yeah, I took it off. I just put it back on, though. I was like, oh, gosh, people don't know when I've been somewhere. It's such a big electric. God, they think I'm not doing any work. <laughs> um, but, yeah, no, I just I think that we do have to become – uh, collectively more conscious, mm. conscientious across the board about how we're looking after our volunteers. I'm really, uh, um, I've always been mindful about my volunteers on the ground. We've got some particular socioeconomics in various parts of my community, so we've always had a bit of a sense and a watch over. Mm. But I've got a lot of elderly in my campaign team who um, can't deal with the violence and the vitriol in the same ways that I, I can, and nor do I want them to be. I get a lot of young people 
you know, Mike, because we don't have a, a university, but I get a lot of high school students join and want to help out. I don't know that I want to expose like, many kids to um, that side of people if I can help prevent that. So I'm definitely doing a lot of thinking about how I'm going to be managing my campaign next year. Mm. And I think it will look different. Mm. But, I, yeah, there's something about that just being on the ground and, uh, yeah, we're doing a lot of thinking about how we can retain that real guts of the way that we do politics in New Zealand. Right. It's always been open door and we love yeah. that. And no one wants to lose that, right? Like we don't want to become don't a kind of lose sec- that. high security political machine that you see in other countries. Yeah. Oh, yeah. well, thank you for all for sharing that. Um, let's, let's talk about, let's just talk about good things now. <laughs> <laughs> let's, I mean, I, I, I just, I we just. We can re- change the world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we can turn it down. Yeah, well, the full three parts. <laughs> Are we supposed to join in? Because yeah, that's not happening. To, I'm banning oh, karaoke. Oh. One, two things I've learned as a politician, you never sing and you never dance because a <laughs> meme follows immediately. <laughs> what did you do? <laughs> <laughs> um, Erica, t- tell me, tell me uh, five years in Parliament, what's the stuff that's, I mean, been most satisfying, not necessarily the the most changing of the world stuff, and you've been in opposition all those five <laughs> years, but what's been the most satisfying? The, the the stuff where you kind of go home and you think, yeah, shit, this is a good job, this this is this is important. Um, migrant nurses. We went into that pandemic and there were nurses in this country who were split because they had to come and do a, a course before they could get registered. You can't bring your families when you do that, so we had thousands of nurses in this country who'd come to do their course and left their young children, often their babies, at home. Mm. And then we went through the pandemic and they were uh, working at the front line and without their families. And we went, I got the portfolio that I wanted, I wanted that portfolio, and we just went hard. I went hard. And I learned, because I had my background in, in you know, reality TV, I, I haven't, because like, the media and reality TV are very similar. Uh, so I know how they think, I know what the hooks they want. Uh, it felt a bit awkward doing it, but I got nurses crying on the news every night holding up pictures of the kids they hadn't seen in 18 months. And I worked every channel, every um, uh, uh, radio station. Um, we, I just went on and on and on, and I did not give up. And I asked the minister in the house uncomfortable questions day after day after day, uh, and we got a policy change. And it took a while, but mid-last year they allowed them to reunite their families. And I got sent videos of these women at the airport that they would film for me, or their husbands would, someone would film them reuniting with their, with their children for the first time in 18 months. And it was so freaking cool. I'm like, that's why I'm here. I, even in opposition, I got a policy change. And it was relentless, and I'm so freaking proud of that. And I just think and they, they flipped on teachers as well. They did the same thing. There's still split families. We've still got the same problem, but it was at that moment, and I still get them sending me messages and just and you know giving really powerful speeches in the house and speaking to a whole lot of protesters outside the split family protesters. That was the the thing. And I remember Chris Bishop <laughs> leaned over to me in the house and he said, "This is going to make your career." And I went. I went lean back to him and I said, I'm not doing this for my career, mate. I'm doing it because it's the right thing to do. Um, and I remember getting up and I gave this speech. It was Mother's Day. It had just been Mother's Day. And I didn't do any posting because I was like, I've just been dealing with these mothers who haven't seen their kids in 18 months. How can I celebrate Mother's Day? And I gave a speech, a, a general debate speech where I talked about that. And I remember, I won't name him, but as a Labour MP yelling across the house, you're just doing this for the votes. And I was like, shot back at him. These people can't vote. They're not even, they're not residents, they're migrants.
parents. Like, what, if I was going to do this for political purposes, it wouldn't be these people. Um, but the thing that I've realised from that is if you always do the right thing for the right reasons, then good things will happen. But I'm so proud of that. I'm so proud of that. That one thing. I did that. Even from opposition. Backbench number 30, I think I was. I don't care. Numbers doesn't, don't matter, you know. Thank you. Kitty. Yeah. Um, and this is why we do the job, right? Uh, you get to change um, the law and you get to allocate resourcing uh, and you oh, the intent is that you get to fundamentally change people's lives for the better. Um, there's, like, there's some policy stuff which I've loved and which have made me feel immeasurably proud, like uh, Māori electoral options going through right now, which enables you to uh, change roles if you're a, a Māori voter. Uh, the donations law, um, law reform that we're doing, that is something that I feel very proud of. Uh, but for me, it's and there's a ton of stuff in the justice space, which is oh, repealing three strikes just the other day. That was fantastic. It was the right thing to do. But the things that when I, if I'm being really genuine and honest, the things that I love, it's um, going to schools and I watch, uh, go and hand out the the lunches in schools Mm. uh, with all the kids because I know that most of the kids in my electorate, we don't have high decile schools. Most of my schools are are low decile schools and, um, you know, they didn't have food and I talked to the teachers about what it means to teach those kids after lunchtime. Uh, it's a radically different experience. Um, it's people coming up or it's really like it's little things in my electorate with my electorate office. And my electorate team do so much of this work. I get to, to bask in their glory sometimes or in the in the joy that they bring to other people's lives. It's um, the amount of people, kids that we've gone to decent homes, new homes, new builds. We've got a lot of homes that have been built in the East Coast. Um, got a project underway at the moment, building 200 homes with the iwi provider up in Gizzi. Um, there was a mum at the AMP show that hit me up the other day. It was a teacher of a mum. Um They'd been struggling to get this young boy and his solo parent into a house forever and they'd been living in some horrific circumstances. It's the faces that linger with you from the things that you're doing. So, yeah, it's like I love doing – I'm too a nerd and I love doing all the constitutional reform. I love doing law reform, the policy work. But it's the people and it's the faces that are etched into my memory of the, the lives that we've touched. So – yeah, that's why you can sort of, even on the hardest and the worst days and you're just clinging on by the, you know, whatever, your, your fingernails are scratched right to the ground and you're feeling really raw, that somebody will just go, bro, remember X, and you're going, yeah, 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 stay the course, stay the course, and we believe in what we're doing. So, yeah, but that's, yeah, it's been a huge week, bro. Thank you. Chloe? I didn't come into Parliament to talk about drugs, But I've ended up doing a lot of that. Uh, And I think the reason for that, so I I originally inherited um, the Medicinal Cannabis Members Bill from Julianne uh, when she became a minister and formed government at the end of 2017. And we're looking around the caucus table and just going, who would want to take on her Members Bill because the minister can't progress a Members Bill. Uh, And I was like, okay, we'll figure that out. (laughs) Um, And through that process, uh, just like, being reminded of uh, some things actually that I learned back when I snuck into Kylie Quince's uh, law classes uh, in Crim about, you know, the reversal of the burden of proof under the Misuse of Drugs Act um, and a range of other things that I think make our drug laws um, the most kind of profound example of injustice um, and illogic and anti-evidence legislation uh, on our statute books. Um, so 
while obviously we I mean, lost. There's a fear, but yeah, there's, there's a bit. There's a bit. Yeah, I mean, like fear, the constitutional basis and like the yeah, the, the Westminster <laughs> system. But in terms of the kind of day to day, and particularly the application of the law, because if you you know take into account that 635,000 New Zealanders used cannabis in the last year, a few thousand were prosecuted for use alone. Um, yeah. Anyway, I think. Uh, it's very easy to forget, particularly with the flashpoint of the 2020 referendum, just how much work has been done over the last five years on this issue alone um, with amendments to motor. So um, the Section 7 changes in police discretion, while they definitely don't go the full hog and anywhere near far enough, they have reduced drastically the amount of people who are um, getting dragged through the criminal justice system. Uh, there was, of course, drug checking, um, which was you know a long fight, and I want to acknowledge Wendy Allison for that. Um, know your stuff, who spent you know several years risking arrest in order to build the mandate and the evidence base to continue pushing for that. So, yeah, a real highlight being able to help champion that through Parliament. Um, then, you know, obviously on the alcohol stuff uh, with me, mate, Kitty Top of Allen, uh, we've managed to put that very clearly um, on the agenda and with that kind of year and a half kind of campaign and rallying the troops and working with those who've been doing this for over a decade in the community, um, yeah, it's happening and it's going to happen now. So I feel like that's helped to reframe the discussion around drugs and we're in a different place than I, I, I think we ever have been. Um, and hopefully right in time for us to look at some commitments from all political parties for the Misuse of Drugs at 1975 to be binned uh, the election next year. Um, but outside of drugs, like um, the first members bill that I ever passed, um, and it was actually the first Green Party members bill that ever passed through all stages with uh, complete consensus in the House, um, first bill to my name, uh, originally drafted by Mojo Mathers, uh, the Election Access Fund Act now. Uh, it's a fund that will come into effect in the 2023 election, uh, available to all candidates with disabilities to be able to run barrier-free to pay for those barriers that they face that um, able-bodied candidates don't. Um, that's huge um, and hopefully will bring um, greater representation of disabled people into our parliament. Um, but then it's, yeah, it's just it's the electric stuff, eh, like, yeah. You know, I, I joke um, that around half of my job in the electorate is um, making council do its job. Uh, yep. Amen, me too. Yeah, <laughs> but like saving the white lady, the, the food truck, um, all white ladies, I don't know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, th that, that was really, really cool. And, you know, working with the washer Fano, um and doing that was awesome. And, you know, the kind of flashpoint that that was for identifying that we only have one food truck licence in downtown Auckland and the impacts that that then has for alcohol harm, but also things like safety in terms of the surveillance effect and all of these other things. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, that, it's that on the ground stuff that really um, keeps you going. Thank you. I forgot one, oh. which was really cool. Um, it was um, it was it's the Jobs for Nature Fund. Mm. Yeah. We did a massive pivot to be able to redistribute that out to really small groups up and down the country. So you've got this massive tribe of like young people that don't look always like typical conservationists. Mm. They come from all walks of life and um, uh, been raised right now through four years of funding essentially like essentially getting a degree in biodiversity, mm. but to love our whenua. And, you know, I talked to a lot of the kids that are on, or young people that are on these programs, and um, a lot of the kids come off winds and those types of things. But uh, I remember this one book because I go see a few of them quite frequently. And, um, you know, all, the, all these young, young marabos, you know, head down, you know, <laughs> um, but I went back, yeah, I kept going to sort of visit this one particular program because it was so neat, the work that they're doing. This one boy, by that 
oh, you know, sort of six months into it. Hey, miss. So, Sup, how's it going? And um, got talking about the work and I said, anyway, so why are you still here? Why are you still like it? He's like, well, everyone thinks that we're helping out the, um, you know, Papa Tuanuku and that we're helping out the tile. Reality is she's healing us. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> 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 it's pretty special. All right, let's let's wind it up. I teed you up for this, so there's no excuses. Uh, someone who's standing for the first time in 2023, what is your now uh, wise, learned advice for that candidate? Do you want to go first, Eric? Sure. Uh, if you're a woman uh, and you've got children, make sure that you – well, anyone doesn't actually matter, a man or a woman, but especially a woman with children, make sure you've got – incredible support you cannot do this job without your number two so my husband Kane who some people in the room know he actually wrote one of your diary he entries did. Yeah. <laughs> he did he writes all my jokes and my speeches so I may not sound funny it's not me it's actually him he loves it um, he's, he's the jokester um, but if I didn't have him I couldn't do my job I mean he does everything at home and like you know, and, and the, the only thing we ever argue about in life is the fact that I'm not around enough which is, you know, another thing. But you have to have some, You have to have a rock-solid person, especially if you've got kids. Uh, and then secondly, your first term, like, you just go nuts in your first term. You'll never get that opportunity again to set the, the scene of this is what I am and this is what I do. If you screw up your first term, you're out. And, and, and if you work really hard in your first term and you're electorate and you're out doing everything, people will remember and you can build a 20-, 30-year career off that mm-hmm. first three years got to be at everything every opening everything mm. but yeah family support's the most important thing thanks can i tap it um looking at chloe we were talking about this earlier yeah. and that we were reflecting on the question and the thing that we both said is don't <laughs> <laughs> That wasn't inspirational and aspirational. So we came up with something else. Yeah, well, why? Didn't we come up with something else? I don't think it was very profound. I mean, look, now that the minister's checked, it's me. Thanks, Kitty. But yeah, it it is the why. I mean, I I completely agree with the point um, that Eric has made about support. Uh, One of the diary entries that I remember now um, writing for you uh, was about how this whole thing would strain any relationship. And I was reflecting then on my relationship with Alex, um, who I subsequently have we've split, uh, but I'm still very good friends with Alex. Um, and I think, yeah, that's a really important thing to, to kind of know and to understand is that you are under a microscope and under a level of pressure um, that, yeah, I, I don't think you can understand unless, unless you're, you're in it. But it is the why that will keep you going. Um, when you're really questioning or when you're really cynical or when you've had the shittiest day ever, um, that's that's the most important thing. So your why might shift and change. The best advice that I ever got, actually I think recorded uh, in a, another spin-off podcast with Marilyn Waring, uh, was um, the, the advice that she gave me when I reached out to her in 2017 because everybody kept saying to me, um, if you get elected, you'll be the youngest since Marilyn Waring. And I was like, who is Marilyn Waring? I should find this out. They don't teach uh, political history in our schools. <laughs> oh, we're, we're working on that now. Um, but Marilyn said, you know, write yourself something, um, whether it's your maiden speech or a letter or something else cheesy, just, just something which is a yardstick for who you are um, when you're making this attempt at doing this thing. 
and reflect on that whenever you feel in a moment of doubt. And if it's changed and you're comfortable with it, rewrite your damn thing. But if it's changed and you're not comfortable with it, then it's time to go. Could have you got something to add, add to that? Yep. Um, Inspiration, bro. Yep. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> She's standing on the table now for those yeah. <laughs> No, I'd say a few things. Um, first, yep, completely agree with what the crew have said. Mm-hmm. Uh, have your tether, uh, know who your know who your crew are, uh, and uh, there's two there's different crews. Eh? There's the one that you're vulnerable with, and you can be your real self, and that that stuff will never change. Mm-hmm. Keep that, keep them tight, um, and and you always need those po in your life, and that will become some of the most important relationships. So just maintain that and set expectations about what you can't do. You will never show up to anything, um, and just get everybody cool with that pretty early. Um, secondly, is that um, oh. Secondly, uh, your crew on the ground are everything. Um, so, and that takes a lot of time. Exactly what Eric was saying. Invest all your time into your people who um, are values driven and values based, and grow your footprint on the ground. Because again, that will become your tether, your crew that will carry you uh, through the good and the bad, and will do that for your community as well. Uh, third, uh, get yourself um, a mentor. Um, mine was Sir Michael Cullen, um, who walked and talked with me a lot through those first few years about um, well, what Parliament was and also what it wasn't. Mm. It's not the, you, you know, we are all just like, you know, little blips and, you know, a long spectrum, so don't carry the weight of the world on your shoulders, but go hard while you've got the ball. Mm. But, you know, for Michael and something that I hope that I've taken on board, which is probably why I do so much work across aisle, is that, you know, he said as a junior minister, um, well, as a junior opposition uh, member, senior opposition member after being a junior minister, watching all of the repeals from National in the early 90s of their critical legislation that they're really proud of doing. So one of the things that he did as a senior minister in the fifth Labour government was to try and really create enduring legislation. Uh, And that's, I think, something that I I hold as a bit of a challenge for us all. It's about building common ground. I've got no interest in attacking you know, build common ground because what you're trying to do is create policy that is lasting, it's enduring and that people believe in mm-hmm. and your job is to work and build build relationships. So I'd probably tell people a little bit about that. Um, finally, I'd say have, have some clear rules that you set for yourself. Um, Michael said to me when I was a, a backbencher, um, your life will get busy as soon as you're a minister, so set your rules now uh, because you won't do it once you become a minister, and I've seen that's true. But always cordon off. Um, I cordon off like half a day. My family are like listening to this guy and give you a liar. <laughs> <laughs> Half a day where it is like it's phones off, it's just dedicated to the people that you love. Sometimes it doesn't always totally work out, but um, but there are some really good rules, and that's just about keeping your keeping your base, keeping your crew um, solid. Half a day, man. That just you know, I don't think people realise how busy busy ministers are. The fact that you have to cordon off half a day, <laughs> like you, but for you that's probably a lot. But when mm. everyone else listening to that, it's like <laughs> wow. And I know, I know, I know. It's, I talk to your colleagues, and they mm. tell me the same thing. Mm. It's it's grim. It's it's a tough job. Yeah, no, hey, we were trying to end this on an up note. Sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Yeah, it's, it's pretty rough on the old relationships. Get a yeah. couple. <laughs> All the best to the next one. <laughs>
Yeah, shout out Nadine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You've done well. Stuff. <laughs> no, no, we're all really tight. We're all going to feed you. It's yeah. well good. Yeah. <laughs> we're all good. <laughs> <laughs> um, hey, look, thank you very much. Uh, uh, well, I want to uh, say a big thanks to the spin-off team that made this event happen. Mark, Angela, Alyssa, Bianca, Matt, and Jane Yee, our fantastic head of podcasts here. And thanks to you guys, you know. I think um, I genuinely think we're lucky to have people of, of your calibre in, in our parliament. Um, so thank you for your, you know, your insights and your candour and, and your time, you know, getting into that half-day cordon, maybe. Um, <laughs> And yes, yeah, we'll we'll, um, we'll do it again in 2027. Huh? Yeah, <laughs> thank you very much. Kia ora e tewi, te Butler here, podcast manager at The Spinoff. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spinoff member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spinoff Podcast Network.